0: Recorded live.
2: Hello. This is Donaldson. I'm going to read for you guys. I'm going to read 46... UCLA L. Rev. 1465. Just read a little bit of that. It was written by um, Eugene Volokh in
1: 1999. It's from UCLA Law Review. A common law model for religious exemptions. And the, the intro says, who, de, who decides when a religious believer should be granted an exemption from a generally applicable rule? Under the constitutional exemption model set up by Sherbet v. Verner, the answer is judges. Under the statutory exemption model of Employment Division v. Smith, the answer is legislatures. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act and its recent state analogs have been billed as
2: ways to restore the constitutional exemption model. In this article, Professor Eugene Volk
1: argues that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act actually implement a third model, a common law exemption model, in which exemption decisions are initially made by courts but are ultimately revisable by legislatures and that this approach is better than than both of the other models he goes on to one explain how to how state religious freedom restoration acts and the federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act as applied to federal laws track the traditional common law development of other sub-constitutional claims of right. Two, argue that this protects the Religious Freedom Restoration Act against some of the criticisms of the Sherbet regime levied by Smith. So Those are obviously cases that you need to uh, check out. And three suggest that drafters of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act should abandon their their current uh, reliance on the strict scrutiny test. Ooh, that's huge! Suggest that drafters of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act should abandon their current reliance on strict scrutiny. Mm. Get rid of strict scrutiny, huh? Mm, I disagree with that. This is Donaldson's analysis. We need strict scrutiny. Um, So, yeah. What do you think about that? And four, argue that viewing religious exemption claims through a common law lens helps show the fallacy of the Sherbet constitutional exemption framework. And five, suggest that the common law right model might be profitably applied to Certain other proposed exemption regimes, such as a regime of limited exemptions for news gathering.
2: When should religious objectors get exemptions from generally applicable laws?
1: When should religious objectors? get exemptions from generally applicable laws? Should a landlady who has religious objections to renting to unmarried couples be exempted from anti-discrimination law? Should a person whose religion views peyote or marijuana use as a sacrament be exempted from drug laws? Should a mother who feels a religious duty not to testify against her daughter be exempted from the legal
2: duty to testify. Equally important, who should decide these matters? From 1963
1: to 1990, the Supreme Court took the view that such decisions should ultimately be made by judges under what I'll call the constitutional exemption model, the court concluded that the Free Exercise Clause generally mandated religious exemptions, a law that substantially burdened religious objectors could be applied to them only if it passed strict scrutiny, i.e. served a compelling governmental interest in the least restrictive way
2: possible. And it was up to the courts to decide whether this test was satisfied. And the...
0: For that is
2: uh, Wisconsin versus Yoder, four oh six US two oh five, and
1: also Sherbet versus Verner, three seventy four US three ninety eight. In Employment Division v. Smith, 1990, the court reversed itself,
2: shifting to what I'll call the statutory exemption model. The free exercise clause the court held does not require exemptions.
1: Whether an exemption is available should be up to the legislature. Following Smith, Congress adopted the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which purported to restore strict judicial scrutiny of all federal and state laws that substantially burden religious practice, mandating religious exemptions wholesale, mandating religious exemptions wholesale, rather than one by one as under the statutory exemption model. When the court held RFRA unconstitutional as a pl- RFRA here and after means
2: religious freedom exempt uh, religious freedom r- uh, restoration act uh when the court
1: held RFRA unconstitutional as applied to state laws in city of burn versus flores 1997 Supporters of exemptions shifted to proposing
2: RFRA-like statutes in each state. These laws, too, purported to restore strict scrutiny.
1: The rhetoric in support of RFRA and the state RFRAs focused on restoration of the constitutional exemption model.
2: A return to having courts decide when exemptions are available.
0: But I argue in parts, I, hold on one moment, people.
1: Here it says, but I argue in Parts 1 A.D. that this RFRA approach actually implements a different regime. So of course the, the approach that he was talking about was the rhetoric in support of RFRA, RFRA of the state RFRA is focused on a restoration of the constitutional exemption model, right? a return to having courts decide when exemptions are available. Okay having courts decide when exemptions are available. A religious exemption and just having courts decide when, when, when exemptions are available, not, not the legislature. And then it goes on to say, so here, so here it goes, but I argue in Parts 1 AD that this RFRA approach actually implements a different regime which I call the Common Law Exemption Model. As under the Constitutional Exemption Model, state RFRAs and the federal RFRA applied to federal laws let courts decide in the first instance whether an exemption is to be granted. But because RFRAs may be revised by the legislature, the court's decisions aren't final. Ultimately, the tough calls will be governed by the political process, just as they have been in the common law system under which American law has generally evolved. From this observation flow some other conclusions. First, as I explain in Part IE, the common law framework gives exemption supporters some of what they want, despite the possibility of legislative override. By letting courts take the lead... And carving out exemptions for conduct that, in the court's view, doesn't really harm others, the framework shifts the burden of overcoming legislation, legislative inertia to favor exemption supporters.
2: Exemptions would thus be rejected only based on
1: only based on, consider, considered, on a considered judgment rather than by mechanical application of laws that may have been enacted without any consideration of their possible effect on religious practices. State RFRAs would also make it especially hard for local governments or executive officials to burden religious exercise, though legislatures can, if they want to, avoid this effect using provisions that I describe in Part I. e. two. And, as I explained in Part IE3, state RFRAs may embolden judges to carve out exemptions that they might not have carved out under the constitutional exemption model. Second, recognizing that RFRAs follow the common law model rather than the constitutional model shows that Employment Division v. Smith's criticism of the constitutional exemption model does not condemn state RFRAs or the federal RFRA as applied to federal law. As I explain in Part I.F., while a constitutional exemption mandate would give courts too much final discretionary decision-making power, the common law tradition shows the legitimacy of giving courts initial discretionary decision-making power. Third, the similarity between the the, the question courts Should ask. The third, the similarity between the question courts should ask when applying the exemption regime and the question they ask when developing the common law, when should people's liberty be constrained by the rights and interests of others, helps show the error of imposing an across the board strict scrutiny test. Obviously, the complex pattern of common law rules couldn't be reduced to any such test. Likewise, for religious exemptions, as I argue in Part 2, instead of mandating such a necessarily misleading formula, legislatures should explicitly instruct courts to develop the religious exemption regime using a common law process uh, through this, will will give. I'm sorry. Though this will give courts fairly little initial guidance, the strict scrutiny test doesn't give courts much sound
2: guidance either, and it gives them some incorrect guidance to boot. Fourth. And independent of the first three points, which should be
1: acceptable even to supporters of constitutional exemption model, the common law regime is better than the constitutional exemption regime. So, again, it says fourth, and independent of the first three points, uh, which should be acceptable even to supporters of a constitutional exemption model, the common law regime is better than the constitutional exemption regime. As part three argues, the constitutional exemption model was flawed for the same reason that the early 1900s substantive due process regime was flawed. I may do what I like so long as I don't harm others is an undeniably appealing principle. But who is to decide in religious freedom cases or in substantive due process cases what constitutes impermissible harm to others and whether such harm is in fact likely to flow from a certain practice? Is it a harm when I refuse to rent my property? Do I harm you if I refuse to testify on your behalf when your life, liberty, or property is at stake? Would allowing some marijuana use cause harm by increasing street crime or addiction uh, to of children? What about peyote? There is no judicially discoverable answer to these questions dictated by logic or by the Constitution. Answering the question is an exercise of moral practical judgment about what harm means and what actually con- causes harm, And the rejection of the early 1900s substantive due process jurisprudence tells us that this judgment must ultimately be left to the political process, meaning judges have no basis for conclusively saying that something that the legislature considers harmful is
2: actually harmless. In other words, a judge can't say, no,
1: I I can't give my interpretation of that, you guys, because it said it too well. Again, this is Westlaw, 2016, Thomas Reuters, no claim to original government works, a common law model for religious exemptions, 46 UCL,
2: UCLA L Rev 1465. Here we go. Alright, the free exercise clause, like other constitutional
1: provisions, does secure a right to do certain categories of things, for instance, discriminate based on race or sex in hiring clergy. Actually, you guys, I'm going to play a quick song, okay, because I want to come right back to, to this. But for now, I'm going to play some music, I think, and I hope I have a, a few listeners here. I probably have no one on the call and it's true I don't have anyone on the call. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put some music on. <laughs> it's just me on the call. And uh let's see what happens when I
2: play the music. Actually let's put um let's put um um some YouTube uh,
1: on what do you guys think about that? Huh? 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 huh?
2: Oh, man, that was fucking hilarious. Oh, man, let's keep that going. Oh, Aries is... Okay, Aries is trying to call me. Right now, let me see if I can give her a call. Well, I'm going to have to call you guys right
0: back.